I'm Mikhail Mizgin, and you're listening to the Ethics and Marketing Podcast. Today I'm joined by Luisa Yarovsky. We talk about ethical considerations in privacy, what role marketing and advertising play in the data privacy ecosystem, the other side of narrow targeting available to marketers on advertising platforms, the ethical implications of marketing activities built around data collection, harms to individuals and society produced by neglect of privacy, how to do marketing while respecting privacy, whether privacy can be a selling point, and more. Hi, Luisa, and welcome to the show. Hi, Mikhail. I'm so excited for being here. Well, to start, could you please introduce yourself and tell us what you do? I'm Luisa Yarovsky. I'm a PhD candidate at Tel Aviv University in privacy and data protection. And I also run the Privacy Whisperer, which is the largest independent privacy newsletter on the internet. Today, we're going to talk about data and related ethical issues. Data is everywhere in marketing. But let's start by clarifying what data is problematic and how is it problematic? Yeah, so this is an interesting question. So it's not really that data is problematic, it's exploiting user data or collecting more data than you should that is problematic. If you look at the European Data Protection Law, for example, the General Data Protection Regulation, it's all about providing safeguards and principles and user rights to help protect people. So, for example, if you collect data without consent, when consent is required, if you collect unnecessary data, if you fail to encrypt or to provide the required security to protect data, or if you fail to be transparent, if you fail to minimize data processing, all these activities, when you abuse data, right, when you collect more or in a wrong way, this is the problem when we are are talking about data protection and, and protecting users. What I want to look at today is harms that data can produce. And I mean collecting data and misusing data, because sometimes, especially when we talk about GDPR and other regulations, general thinking is that we have to comply. But the legislation as its basis, ethical concerns, and I mean doing harm to people, harming society. And to understand better where to look for potential problems and how to prevent them, it's necessary to understand the data life cycle. In your PhD work, you suggest three main stages, collection, processing, and use of data. What are the ethical and legal concerns associated with each stage? Yeah, so this is also a very important uh, question to understand exactly where, where are privacy harms. So if we think of these three main phases, right, data collection, processing, and use. So chronologically, the first one is data collection. So the, a data controller or a, let's say a, a website, a, a company needs to collect data from users, right, or wants to collect data from users. And and I try to see the problem in terms of unfair practices. So I try to identify in these three main phases, I try to identify what are the unfair practices and how regulation could tackle them. So if we think about the collecting phase, uh, I see the main problem in unfair design. So dark patterns in privacy. So dark patterns is a concept that is 
very popular nowadays. It was uh, first coined by Harry Brignall. When he spoke, for, he first spoke about dark patterns, he said generally, right? Not necessarily only about data or about privacy. So for example, if you're buying something in an e-commerce and the company sneaks something into your basket and in the end, you're going to your she- checkout and you, you realize, wow, this is this insurance product or something else that I didn't add to my, my shopping cart. So this would be a type of the, a general dark pattern, not necessarily connected to privacy. Uh, what I, I talk a lot about in my PhD, is dark patterns in privacy. So all the design tricks that are made and implemented to collect more user data or more sensitive user data. I developed also a taxonomy. So, so these dark patterns can be of many types. So one example is a very difficult privacy setting. Let's say that, uh, okay, I am a company and I, I, I say, listen, I protect your privacy and here's your privacy. Please navigate through this privacy setting menu. And it's a very complicated privacy settings with hundreds, sometimes really dozens or hundreds of choices. And you have to select one by one and really design your choices. But people don't have time to stop and only think about private. They want to use the product or service. So this is their pattern. So if you provide too many choices, no choices is not good, but also too many choices is not good. You're not respecting the human nature, right? People don't have time. So this uh, is a type of dark pattern. Or when you put a button that is very difficult to see, you add accept cookies or deny cookies, but you, you the accept cookies button is very flashy and uh, with a high contrast color, but the deny cookies is almost impossible to see. It's difficult to see. So you're again exploiting a, a user vulnerability. One of the tips to identify these dark patterns in privacy is when the designer or the person shaping the choice is exploiting a a cognitive bias, right? A a user vulnerability. You exploit a bias and then you push the choice that will make the user share more data or more sensitive data. So this would be the unfair design, the the unfairness in the collecting phase. If we, we go along, so the next phase would be processing data, right? After you collect everything that you can do with data, you're processing data. You're trying to take conclusions from this data. So the second example of thinking about the processing phase is unfair algorithms or algorithm bias. So if you think about machine learning algorithms, you have to train the data set to then have conclusions from this data set. And um, one famous problem with this uh, data sets and training is facial recognition softwares. And they are known to be less accurate with darker skin. So there are very unfortunate cases of black people who were wrongfully arrested because of problems in these algorithms that could not accurately uh, identify black faces. Another example of Uh, unfair algorithms would be, for example, when there is already bias in society or prejudice, a bias in society that gets replicated and boosted by the algorithm. So for example, Google autocomplete. And it is really an ethical decision. There's no specific regulation for that. But let's say people are have uh, anti-Semitic thoughts or they think badly about Jews or they have racist thoughts and, and they type that on Google. And it gets typed over and over again. So with the autocomplete uh, algorithm, it will start suggesting people. So when people start typing what is, they will suggest those uh, racist or anti-Semitic thoughts and sentences that people are typing. So this is an ethical question, right? That's how the algorithm should work and, and boost those prejudicial uh, and biased thoughts or should the algorithm correct them? So this is also, there is no legislation against that. So it's a case of unfair data processing and ethics and, and law will play into that. And there's no, still the, no regulation on that. 
there's another type of unfair phenomenon in, in data processing, which is when, when the algorithm doesn't have the context to the site. So, for example, there was a recent case of a father who uploaded a picture of his naked son to send to the doctor. His son had something in the body, so the father uploaded uh, this picture to send to the doctor. And the algorithm flagged him as a, a potential criminal, and he had it, and there were months to, to try to correct that. So there was something of a context that was missing here. The father was legitimately sending the picture to the doctor with, for a specific purpose to help the son, and the algorithm flagged it in a wrong way. So these are all problems and, and cases of unfair data processing that we can find and, and that legislation should propose to correct or to tackle these problems. And the next phase, if we continue chronologically, would be data use. So it's when the problem is not necessarily in the technology or in the, the way you process data, but the way you, you use this technology. For example, if an employer decides to add cameras to the workplace, so this employer puts a camera behind every table with a chair and he, this employer wants to, to check what the employees are doing. There are many uh, already em employment regulations that would prohibit that, but they're, they're different around the world and where you can put cameras in, in what context. So this is also a problem of using technology. So we can have very... Uh, incredible technology, but also the way you use it and the context you use it, if there is an employment relationship or a family relationship, how does law see those technology uses and tackle the practices that are abusive or that can be unfair? So this would be the view of different types of unfair practices in the data life cycle. Going back to data collection, I think that the main problem surrounding data collection and ethics around this is consent and informed consent. And that companies looking to collect as much data as possible. And we're not talking about why they would want to collect this data and uh, how they're going to use it, but it's how they collect data, right? And consent is the central concept in, in data collection. And what I wanted to ask here is, uh, is there a certain legislation or certain standards or suggestions? What is an informed consent and how it should look and how a company or I as a marketer would want to approach data collection in a manner that is ethical? And maybe at the same time, what uh, gray areas I should look at as a marketer, uh, what I should actively think of when I design some sort of consent, uh, whether it's uh, as mundane as a cookie banner or maybe something more complex. So what are the most important aspects I should look at around consent? Mm -hmm. Interesting question. So uh, when we are looking into the ways we can lawfully and ethically collect data, uh, the GPR has some uh, interesting guidances on that. So one way is consent. When you want to collect data for some purposes, which the law establishes, you need consent. And the law says it has to be informed and the law really exemplifies ways that you can collect consent in a way, using visualization, using even automatic means, anything that in accessibility, anything that can help the user to decide better. You have to be transparent. You have to offer a certain amount of information to inform users. So there are general guidelines. What I, what I see that is still missing, and that's how I see that marketers and designers, sometimes they, they get lost and they don't uh, design a, a cookie banner right or a, a website design right, is that uh, the whole experience of the website and the notice and the privacy policy should respect user vulnerabilities and, and cognitive biases. So even, let's say you're a marketer and you want to do everything by the book, so you go to the GDPR and you see the list of items that you should convey to the user. You go to your lawyer and the lawyer 
drafts a, a long privacy policy with everything on it or a very detailed privacy notice for a specific data that you want to collect. And you just add this push notification. Listen, this is the scroll down, please scroll down, read this and accept, please. So you think you're doing right. But thinking about the user and putting even putting yourself as a user, would, would you have time to read that? Would you be interested in reading that? Would that information be in any way meaningful to you? Would that really fill the transparency requirement? So what I, I also propose in PhD is this framework called privacy enhancing design. Is the idea that when you design experiences or anything related to choices or privacy choices, you should have cognitive biases in mind and try to support the user. So your role as the data controller or someone who, who knows more about your business and who knows what are the benefits or the, the risks, you should attempt to really support the user and provide information in an easy way, in a way that the user can understand, maybe with big letters, with colors, and with the same language that you use to sell your products, you can use this language to exemplify and to make it, let's say, a, a consumer-friendly version first, and then you, you bring the longer version later for someone who is more interested. Of course, you have the, the legal requirements, so you must put the detailed information. But you can bring this information also in a way that is more digestible, that the user will be interested in reading and will be able to connect the overall experience or the business model and what's behind it and why the user is, is really sharing this. It's really what's fairness and transparency. is making the user understand the purpose and, and the business model and how providing data might put him or her in risk or might bring him a benefit. Consent is, is not the only way. There are uh, cases where you can rely on legitimate interests. For example, direct marketing. We can say, at least according to GDPR, most direct marketing situations where the product is related to what your customer has already bought will be probably uh, legitimate use. But in any case, uh, there are principles. So even if you're relying on legitimate interest, there are principles and data subject rights that you have to respect and that you have to promote. For example, data minimization, purpose limitation. You cannot, as a marketer, I know it's very tempting and marketers love data to have uh, personas and then to have great profiling and target users in a better way, but it's different today. Today, data protection law is getting stronger, so you really need to respect those principles. You have to minimize the amount of data that you're collecting, only the necessary to provide a certain service. Or purpose limitation, you have to be explicit and, and know in advance how you're going to use and process data. So marketers, in my view, maybe I'm uh, too idealistic, but marketers, design people, uh, product people, they should be familiar with data protection law and privacy. Because also to, to do marketing today, you have to think about privacy and, and limits and, and data subjects rights and principles. If you don't do that right, you can have uh, problems with data protection law. The standard approach that many companies take is, and that's historically been happening for last two decades, uh, the approach is let's collect as much data as we can and then decide later how to use it. And I see this is the mindset that a lot of businesses have. It looks like this is changing due to privacy concerns. So what would you say about this approach and the associated problems with it? I think it really doesn't work very well anymore for a few different reasons. So first, there, there are those data protection principles and data subjects rights. Data minimization, you should collect necessary data. You should, you should collect, try to collect only what's really necessary to achieve a certain purpose. So really collecting without, collecting to afterwards decide what you're going to do with this data, I don't think it even, it can even fit a GDPR view. I think a data protection lawyer in a company should, should not allow this approach. And purpose and limitation, right? You have to be really specific. According to the law already, you have some limitations coming from the law. 
law. So if a data protection officer in a company is going to do a data protection impact assessment, it should not be allowed to have this broad data harvesting to afterwards decide what's the purpose for what this data was going to be. I don't think it's lawful according to at least the GDPR or European regulations. A second, if you think from the consumer point of view, it's also changing. So latest research that you can look online, uh, research, there, there are some studies, uh, user studies about uh, user perception regarding privacy. If the users value privacy, if the consumer takes privacy into consideration, it's really changing. Very much pushed by the GDPR and the many waves of changes it brought. Consumer today is more aware about privacy and he or she wants to know how the company is using their data and and if they are being according to the law or if they are being transparent if they are being uh, honest with how they collect data i think really it if a company have does something wrong and and the user starts realizing that there's something wrong look why should i give my name address these sensitive preferences to buy a product it doesn't make any sense i think that the users will start perhaps 10 years ago it would not make so much difference the user would think wow that's what they're requesting so i'm just going to provide but i think the consumer today is changing and is being much more critical about it privacy behavior it's changing and it, it would not work if you don't respect privacy and if you just want to be negligent and collect whatever data you want to after the site i think you're going to suffer in terms of business because the consumer is changing also and also the, the market is changing if you think of uh, recent changes like when apple when the ios changed to push users to actively reject third-party tracking. So this is also a, a change coming from the market. So, so Apple wanted to push that. We can talk about that later, what, what were the, the reasons behind this choice, but it's something that made users more aware. Wow, so I was being tracked. So it brought to attention the, this topic. So there are many sources for these changes, right? There's a change coming from the law, but also a societal change of, of people understanding that privacy is something that there's real privacy harm and and also a change from the competition companies want to have business advantage so because they want to have a certain advantage they push privacy but it also has some uh, effects of bringing people's attention to privacy and say wow so there is this whole thing called tracking so my phone is just not something that i can play my games there is also this surveillance economy behind it and companies trying to collect my data to perhaps sell it to other third parties so i think the, the landscape is changing and no, I think it doesn't work like this anymore that you can, for all these reasons, it's bad for business and it's risky to collect that uh, harvesting without purpose. It's, it's not what, what should be done anymore. And, well, it's, it should never have been done in the past, but today it, it doesn't make any sense. In, in, even if, you're, if you want to be unethical uh, and you don't care about legislation and you're going to have risky behavior and risk to receive a fine, it would be bad for business. I, I don't think it makes any sense anymore. Okay, so ethics is about doing the right thing and i don't think there are lots of people who want to harm other people but sometimes it's difficult in a marketing space to really connect what you do to actual harm happening to people so i want to talk mm -hmm. more about this mm -hmm. marketers use data provided by social media by social media platforms for advertising purposes this is the main revenue stream for all social media platforms. And advertisers usually appreciate a variety of targeting options so they can reach narrower groups of people. 
does social media platforms always look for ways to get as much data as possible so they can make narrow targeting possible? There is a lot of personal data being provided in this context. So what could go wrong? What are the associated harms? And what is the price of narrow targeting available to advertisers? So it's a very important question because I think uh, social networks offer a great example of how this, uh, let's call it surveillance economy, can be bad for people in so many different ways. This is a great example. So millions of people are using social networks, let's say Facebook every day, and who pays the bills are, are the advertisers. So they want, as you said, narrow targeting. So the first thing we can think is the business model, right? So Facebook's marketing is let's connect, let's share, let's follow the pages you love, enter groups. It's all about sharing. How are you feeling today? Why don't you post a picture of what you ate today? It, this whole The whole experience of Facebook is to make you share more. So this is a, a first step, right? So people, they don't really, uh, I would I say most, if you think about the, the millions or I think it's more than a billion users Facebook has, I would say most of them, they don't get the business model. They don't get to see the big picture of what's behind, how they make money is through their data. So this is, I would say, is the first layer of problem, which is the lack of awareness. It's different from, let's say, offline world. You go to the market and you buy an apple. You know you're going to a market, you're going to give some money, and you're going to get an apple in exchange. So for me, this is the first level of problem, which is people don't know exactly what exactly is the market. People don't understand what is the market they are in. So it's a market of data, right? Of personal data in exchange for ads, which will pay the bill to offer Facebook for free. So if you ask people in, in many places, why is, how does Facebook make money if it's free, if we can connect with everyone and for free? So many, many people will not be able to explain that. For me, this is a first level of a problem. So the second thing, Facebook is designed to make you share. So if you think of privacy, it is a concern, of course, even especially after the scandals and all the privacy slips Facebook had, it has privacy concerns. But it's not the mainstream. It, it doesn't advertise. Look, be mindful with your data before you post. Think about it. What do you want? Everyone to see this picture. Or if you're posting, if you're posting a picture of uh, your child uh, in a sensitive moment, would you want this picture to be around for maybe unknown people, people with malicious intentions to see this picture? It doesn't really push this idea of privacy, right? So Facebook is, is has the, the privacy settings somewhere else, a bit hidden there. You you can go to a privacy tour and you can check your preferences. But but in the, in the experience, it pushes you to share. It, it normalizes sharing and not being mindful of your data. So this, for me, is, is another level. When, when the design doesn't take into account privacy, right? Although privacy should be in the center because that's the business model. That's where the money goes. The money goes through selling the data. So while we are sharing our data, it's not made clear to us in, in our interactions with, with the network that there might be risks. For example, posting too much or being targeted. If, if you're a teenager, you're posting your life and you might be target of bullying or having mental health issues because of comparison. And it's not made aware for you to be mindful of your data. And for me, this is another level of problems that can happen for not being aware. Because of these two first problems that I said, let's see someone, a mom posts a picture of her teenager in a, maybe in a, for her it was funny, but for the teenager, perhaps not so funny. It's a typical sharing thing situation, right? When the, the parent is sharing uh, images or video, documenting the life of the child online. There can be consequences, right? So this, this mom was, it's not that it's a, 
bad mom. It's she's just following the example of everyone else posting pictures, and it's super fun to post and to share. This mom has just posted a picture of this teenager, and this teenager was not aware. And maybe for some reason, the the friends discovered this picture and started to bully this child, who started to have mental health issues, or started to need counseling. So this is one level of problem because of what I said, right? The whole design doesn't make people aware of what they're doing and, and foster these problems such as sharing and normalizing the documentation of children's life online. Uh, it's not necessarily uh, connected to the targeting, as we are going to talk. It's a secondary consequence of this whole environment of fostering sharing, but which causes also harm. So people get the mental health consequences and they get disconnected uh, or a teenager comparing herself to other girls online and she is always comparing to models and to the characters in the brand and the, the, this teenager also has mental issues. So it's connected to this environment that is necessary for the ad network to work. If you want targeting to work well, you need to make people share, constantly sharing and, and interacting online. It needs to be normalized. If you don't normalize that, the targeting will not work. If you think specifically about the, the, the algorithm and, and the, another level of problems, so people, they share, and it's some research has shown that more extremist opinions or more negative or more, uh, let's say, sensational opinions, they will have more attention and more interaction. So there, there's the feed, and there's a lot of information going on, posts from brands, posts from your friends, and you see something that is shocking. There is, perhaps it's disinformation, perhaps it's a lie, but it gathers your attention. You're from the left, and you're hearing some opinion from the right, and it looks like a very extremist opinion, and you share it, and you're, you say, look, look how, how this is horrible. Look how the right is trying to kill us. And the same thing the other way around. If you are from the right, you have a more conservative opinion, and you see a post from the left that is kind of distorted. Then you see this is the left. You see how the left is bad. So really, the algorithm, not necessarily intentionally, but it's optimized to extreme opinions because that's how human mind works. You want the sensational uh, tracks, uh, gathers more attention than a more... Uh, informative content or neutral content. So the, the algorithm, the way the algorithm works in order to have more data and more interaction, because that's what feeds the ad network, will, as a consequence, have more division and promote hate and disinformation. And all content that is sensationalist will have more interaction and more people interacting with it. So it's another consequence of this sharing environment. The algorithm will always benefit whatever is gathers more interactions and shares and likes and comments. And it's not necessarily the content that would benefit the people. It benefits the ad network because you have more eyeballs and more people interacting for more time and more addicted to it and wanting to, to be more aggressive or share more their opinion because of what the emotion they just felt. But this is another consequence. So making people share and having an algorithm that don't really necessarily supports people or people's wellness or children or teenagers to grow. It's not the main focus. The algorithm wants eyeballs, wants money from the ad network. So it needs really people to keep interacting. So this is another concept. And perhaps because of this division, right, this hate that is not necessarily intentionally, but it is fostered by the algorithm, you can have real life hate, right? So anti-Semitism, racism, everything can be fostered by this algorithm that just wants interaction and eyeballs. And it can cause real life problems. And you see hate crimes that they start, if you investigate further, you see that the person that committed the crime was already interacting online and was having access to this kind of content that is not being uh, held by the algorithm because it's the, not the main focus of the algorithm in the social networks. The main client are the advertisers. So of course they want people and eyeballs. So we are eyeballs. We are uh, 
data for advertisers. So we are not our well-being and, and ethics and helping people to grow and become better people is not the main focus. So these are all consequences from this whole environment, right? So there, there are real harm it's directly connected to the whole environment. So another, another type of uh, harm that can come from this uh, environment of a social network is the profiling. So in order to have a precise targeting, you need to have groups of people with certain preferences. So then advertisers will buy an ad that will target a certain group. So as a natural consequence, some opportunities, some ads will be targeted to group A and not targeted to group B for whatever reasons. But you as the person, as an individual with uh, your own personality, your own desires, you don't know that you're part. You didn't choose to be part of this group A instead of group B, but you're going to suffer the consequences. You're going to be targeted ads that are directed to group A, but maybe... Uh, these ads or these consequences is not what you're aiming for your life or let's say some job opportunities, I don't know, some promotions or access to a certain type of content that is, is being directed and engineered to you, but you didn't choose it. And it was chosen by the algorithm, which is focused on the ads. So these are real people with real preferences and, and lives that are being impacted by these choices and by this environment and by the targeting. And people didn't choose to be part of that and they, they didn't choose to be a part of this maybe hate bubble. So we don't know how the algorithm works. There's no transparency also of how exactly the algorithm chooses what posts will be seen by whom. Hate posts or divisive posts, they did not necessarily chose to, but they are being targeted by it. This targeting will have real life consequences for these people. So if, if we think about more extreme, there can be a suicide, right? So if you're this whole targeting and comparison and bullying can, in most extreme cases, lead to suicides or uh, real mental health issues, for especially for teenagers and for more vulnerable populations. So those are the extreme cases. But the core problem is that human beings and the well-being of human beings is not the focus of these networks. We must always see where the money is, right? Money is being invested and when what's the focus, we need to follow the money. So in case of social networks, money is in advertising. So it's not something built for people or with people as the first priority, and it can cause online and, and offline uh, consequences. Let's see if I got it right. So advertisers need more data to be able to get a better ROI on their advertising. And because they need this data from social platforms, those social platforms try to push as much sharing as possible on their users. So they push users to share and share and share. And this turns into what's called attention economy. Right. So yeah, exactly. people start to share more and more to get more attention. And this becomes like a social phenomenon where people want to do that without yeah. realizing the consequences or maybe even understanding why they're doing it. Because the social platforms creates this environment where this becomes a norm and people want to do what other people are doing. Right. They want to get more attention. And so they share more, you know, like sharing pictures of their kids to get more attention, right? Yeah, uh, and social validation, yeah, and, and so even and social status sometimes. Yeah. And so uh, th this is all done to actually get more data. Thus, data is prioritized over anything else. Data prioritized over mental health of people. Data is prioritized over social problems that could be a consequences of such uh, attention economy because yeah. social networks do whatever they can to get more data. 
even though it could lead to problems related to health of people, or uh, we know about data economy posing a threat to uh, democracy principles. So this is all consequences of the model where advertising needs more data from social networks. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, I think we as advertisers, so I'm a marketer, right? So uh, I, I buy ads and I know it's difficult to do anything about this because it's a systematic problem that you as yeah. an individual advertiser, you can't really solve this. But I think it's important to understand that what we do has these long-term consequences. Okay, so my question would be, are there better and worse social networks or is it a systematic problem of any social network? So yes, I think there are uh, better, it's a, it is a systematic issue, but I think in this concept, we, we can think of better and worse social networks or environments where you can support people and environments where you can exploit people. So, and I think I see the power very much with the product people, designers, marketers. For example, I wrote a, an article a few months ago about TikTok, about the, the dark side of TikTok, the problems with TikTok. From the ones I experimented, I think it's probably the worst. And, and I will try to answer your question using TikTok as an example. So TikTok is, the audience is very young. It's one of, I think from the main social networks is the one that has the, the youngest audience and they use it the most. If you check the latest research, I think the average is one hour a day for young audiences, like less than 18 years old and the app it's built to keep eyeballs so it's really not focused on the well-being of children at all so if you think about the for you page right when you enter tiktok the first thing is the for you page if you don't have an account you just open the app and you want to check it out and the for you page will recommend you the most viral videos right the ones that have been receiving the most attention and, and interaction there are researchers showing also that you need to hook people in three seconds so these three these videos that are going to be shown to these teenagers are very sensationalist videos that men have managed to hook in three seconds so maybe dances or people doing crazy things or intent but you need to hook in three seconds so you have to do content to hook and it was really shown that teenagers they are addicted they are just scrolling and scrolling and they cannot stop scrolling because it's so sensational and this and it's quick right to see three seconds there are the short videos and you go to the next and you go to the next and you go to the next and the main focus of these videos is to capture attention because that's how you get successful on TikTok and creators are making money on TikTok and the network is made to capture the attention. Really, you need to be quick to capture attention. There's no time for uh, slowly paced content or teaching. Hello, let's learn something new today. If you start like this in, in three seconds, it's it's gone. The person is gone. You don't have any audience. So this is not what's the best for the brain of a teenager. So that that's why teenagers are there for hours because they, they just cannot get out. So some uh, research has shown that there is a phenomenon that is this, that is called intermittent reinforcement. That is the same thing that happens in casinos where you're there scrolling and sometimes you see something amazing, incredible, wow, it releases hormones in your brain and then you're excited and you see the next video is not so amazing, but you, you don't know when there's going to be the next big, amazing, super interesting video. So you keep scrolling because it will appear and it appears randomly and you cannot control it, but you will see it and you you cannot stop because you want to see the next, the next, the next and, and receive your next dopamine hit. I see it as the epitome of the attention economy. It's 100%. The design, the algorithm is everything optimized to keep children and teenagers there looking. And advertisers are crazy about TikTok. Everyone wants to go viral on TikTok. So it's the big thing in the moment. So that's it. That's how I see something better. 
what would be a positive, a, more, a better example? How would I improve TikTok? So I think, first of all, design, and, and that's, again, I'll come back to the framework I'm proposing the PhD, is this idea of privacy-enhancing design or privacy-enhancing experience. Data pays the bill, so you need to really protect this data. You need to really be ethical and have privacy as your first priority. So if you want to profit from data, you need to support people when they're sharing this data. So, for example... Helping people to have choice. So I don't like this idea that an algorithm chooses the content and you're there and you get bombarded by this uh, crazy stimulating content. Why not allowing people to have more autonomy, allowing people to have space to think? Like not this endless scroll that has to be amazing in three seconds. This is not what supports the vulnerability of children. Why not give children time to think about what they just said? Allowing children and teenagers to have their own ideas, to think about what, what they saw and to choose what type of content they would like to see more. I read that in China, they limit the amount of time that children can use TikTok. In China, they, it's called ByteDance, not TikTok. It's a great measure. I love it. It's really connected to the vulnerability of teenagers. So teenagers, they are really forming their, their critical aspect of the brain. So if you let them there, they will be the whole day on TikTok. You have to help them. So why? Okay, so limited. Let's say the, the people from a certain age, they should be told, oh, listen, you, you've spent this X time on TikTok. Isn't it time to do something else? Maybe to go play outside, go do something else. You need to support people. It's what I have in mind is this consumer protection mindset. So if you think about in terms of law, consumer protection is all about seeing the consumer as vulnerable and helping the consumer. There are so many rules about consumer protection in the offline world, right? So something, a product that is risky should not be available to a certain age or should have big warnings about what's bad about that. That, that should be the mindset regarding privacy. So the design should be should help people be mindful about their data, should help people be mindful about their identity, what they're sharing, how they're being influenced about this algorithm and about this crazy environment that wants to, to sell data to advertisers. So th- that would be what I see a better social networks. One that helps protect people's vulnerabilities, right? That sees the customer and see, listen, I- I'm profiting from this personal data. So my duty as, as someone who's profiting from this is to, to support, to give autonomy, to give transparency. I let this person know what's going on. The person should have a choice. You want to be here? Fine, you can be here. You're an adult and you want to be hours on TikTok dancing or doing whatever, you can do it. That's great. You, but you need to have a choice. You need to understand that this is an algorithm that is pushing you the most viral content that is probably addictive. You, you probably should be mindful of that. But there's no warning, no nothing. It's just a pure exploitation of biases. So in the opposite side, a good a good environment, a good online environment should have people as, as their first priority, should support people's vulnerability and support people's choices, be transparent. So all these values is, is what I would expect from, from a place uh, with more ethics and more that really what, what I would like to see is people being supported, people being helped to have a, a healthier life and a, a fulfilling life. And if the algorithm is all the time time to optimize for ads, it's not going to happen. Many businesses depend on data harvesting companies. This is especially prominent in the e-commerce space, where a lot of businesses currently get most of their orders through Facebook ads, for example, could be TikTok. As privacy legislation and its enforcement is growing, what's your prognosis here? When should such businesses start thinking about new ways of getting new customers? 
I think in a way it's already happened. I think there are so many discussions in both sides of the Atlantic, in the US and in Europe. I see uh, reports being drafted about tracking and trying to, let's say, to change the way things work. I see, for example, first-party tracking versus third-party tracking. Third-party tracking become more and more regulated and also because of the iOS change that I said that people started to think more, oh, so I, I have the option to not allow third-party tracking. So usually, historically, law is always behind, right? So people have this view of law, wow, it's always 10 years behind technology, so we can just profit a lot now because it's going to take so long for for a new law to come along and to fine us or to have a, any infringement procedure. But I think it's changing. I feel that the regulators in Europe and in the US, they're, they're really trying to, to work with experts and think, so, okay, so what can we do to, to make it work, to, to make it better for people? I think tracking, third-party tracking, it's going to be harder and harder to, to have third-party tracking and, and consent. So, this, so today you have to ask consent for that. And I think it's going more and more to have more stricter uh, thresholds for consent of what's really informed consent and how do you prove that the person really understands what's going on with the data? I think it's going to be harder and harder. My, my advice would be to focus more and more on contextual advertising and uh, uh, not relying on tracking user data and perhaps first party tracking or contextual advertising as so regulators are already trying to, to find another solution for these all forms of tracking. Mm -hmm. So it's like if you want to sell to people who like a certain thing, instead of relying on different platforms, knowing, profiling people that they would have like a, a a data point in their profiles that says that they like that thing. Instead of that, you would need to find maybe groups or forums online on different platforms where these people hang out and you would need to find a way to get inside these groups and advertise there. Exactly. Find communities, affinity communities. That's I would expect what's coming for the next years. Mm -hmm. And Privacy is becoming more mainstream. One of the great examples is Apple. And Apple is marketing itself as privacy-oriented company now. At the same time, there are lots of moves that Apple made that discussed a lot in marketing communities. And these are very interesting moves, uh, like limiting tracking of email opens so that marketers don't know, uh, they can't see the, uh, the open rate in their emails. At the same time, as many expected, Apple is launching their own, has launched, or is launching, I don't know, <laughs> is launching yeah. their own ad network. It's a very interesting situation. So what do you think? Is it still a win for privacy or is it an unacceptable use of privacy as a marketing tool? Or is it okay to use privacy as a selling point? I think specifically regarding Apple, it, I, I was very critical on that because I'm a transparency fundamentalist. I think that privacy is very much connected with fairness and transparency. So when you say privacy, it's that's iPhone and you, you're saying that it's all about privacy, your products are super related to privacy but what's really behind is a super intelligent business move where you oh, you really uh, expelled your competitors and you got a great advantage in the ad market that bothers me because you're you're it's like a, we say privacy wash right you're you're saying something you're pretending that you love something but your interests are actually others and that, that's what really matters for you so in the first point i i'm very critical because of transparency everything that tries to trick 
users treat consumers, I'm really, I'm really, I get really angry with that. So this is the first negative aspect. Second, regarding privacy and, and uh, business practices, if you do real privacy, if you really care about privacy and you're making efforts to train your company and to really make your company privacy oriented, I think it's great for business. As I said, research sh shows that people, they are seeing the value of privacy or, or companies that take measures, real measures to protect privacy. So privacy is a selling point. If you're doing it for real and you advertise it as your, listen, I'm, I used to do this type of practice, we changed. Now we are, we are being more privacy protective. This is how we work. This is our business model. This is how we collect data. This is how we don't do it. This is good for business. I think people, the consumer is changing and that's the new consumer. The consumer wants to know what's going on. I don't think most people are getting the big picture, but they are trying to see that there are players behind in the background, right? The transaction in data. So I think privacy, if you do it for real and you advertise that and you, and you tell that to your consumer and you, you really do what you, what you say, it's great for business. So it is a selling point and, and it is good that it is a selling point because then we create competition, right? So people try, it's a great way to advance. One way to advance privacy is through legislation, as we saw GDPR, right? The GDPR caused a big wave of privacy changes. So one way is through regulation, but Another way is, is, is through the market. So when companies start to compete around who has who offers more privacy, that's great. Wow, I love that. It's a great level of competition. Then we'll have more privacy technologies, more vendors and small companies offering to help big companies or medium companies, small companies to implement privacy. This is great. This is really a, a market to help people to become more aware. However hypercritical the Apple move is, I think it helped a lot to shift the mindset for many people, marketers and not marketers, because of the significance of Apple. Apple is huge, right? And if Apple is moving in this direction, then it's a clear indication for marketers and for non-marketers that privacy will become a thing that is commonly accepted as a norm. It's really my hope, really. I agree with you. And uh, I, I, I think it's, it will happen. Maybe, maybe I'm uh, too idealistic. So in conclusion, from your perspective, why privacy matters and why marketers should take it seriously from ethical point of view? I think privacy matters because pri protecting privacy is protecting human dignity, protecting how data is shared and how data is collected, processed, and used is protecting real life of people, how these people, how real people are going to be affected for the way their, their identities are being used by third parties. If you want to protect human dignity and fundamental rights, you need to protect privacy. Privacy is growing and this trend will continue. I think that at this point, all marketers should keep themselves up to date on discussions about privacy as it affects many areas of marketing. And of course, I would like to emphasize that it's important that marketers understand the why of privacy, why privacy matters, not from legal or liability perspective, but potential harms that neglecting privacy can do to people and society. Okay, where can my listeners find you on the web? So uh, I'm every day on Twitter and LinkedIn posting about privacy and privacy insights. And I also have my newsletter, The Privacy Whisperer, the cur currently the, the largest independent privacy uh, newsletter online. You can subscribe on LinkedIn. 
and also on review through Twitter. If you go to my Twitter profile, Luisa Yarovsky, you can subscribe to the newsletter there. And there are also my academic articles you can find on SSRN, but all the links, you can find all the relevant links on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Awesome. For now, I'll thank Luisa for coming to the show. Thank you, Luisa. Thank you so much, Mihail. It was a pleasure to be here. And I want to thank the audience for listening to conversations about ethical problems in marketing and making our profession better. If you like this podcast, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. That's it for now. And until next time, bye.